0: Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97
3: at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at CedarPoint.com. Welcome
4: to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And we are entering into winter. Are we? Yeah, well, today it feels more like winter.
0: I would say in Atlanta, we enter into winter sometime around (laughs) mid-March, and then we exit it sometime around mid-March. Yeah. And then it's summer again until December when fall begins.
4: Yeah, that's the way it was this last year. It it basically stayed fall. Then it became spring, just enough for my fig tree to begin to to emerge. And then it was winter again for like three days, just enough to kill it. This is really disrupting,
0: I think, Mm -hmm. because... You want to be able to have seasonal traditions and you want them to be able to 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 be reenacted with some kind of reliability every year. Seasonal traditions are something that I think gives a lot of anchoring meaning to our lives. When you're a little kid – And you have that recognition that, like, oh, Christmas is coming or something like that, whatever your traditions may be. If you don't Mm -hmm. celebrate Christmas, you probably have something like that sometime in the year that sort of, like, marks a seasonal transition and and that another – a part of a season is based around. So, like, here in America, for kids who celebrate Christmas – Winter is not just a cold time, it's Christmas time.
4: Yeah, yeah. It's it's almost impossible to escape the trappings of essentially northern European uh winter survival traditions. Yeah. They've been, you know, they've been neutered and altered and and, and changed into a a different uh Form altogether, but the shape is still there. Like the the, the deep mythic uh, importance of Santa Claus and and Yule logs, all the, all these various trappings, like they're 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 mythic. Purpose is still present if you if you just look hard enough.
0: Yeah, but you can also see that there's something kind of wrong with mm-hmm. the way we practice Christmas here in Atlanta, Georgia. Because when I see all of the, the the traditional aesthetic stuff that's associated with Christmas, it's all got snow on it. There's just snow <laughs> on everything. Santa's walk around in the snow. He's got snow on him. He kind of looks like he's sort of made of snow. There is snow on all the Christmas trees you see in all the pictures and sn- children playing in the snow, and it. Never snows on Christmas down here. It's
4: usually in the seventies. <laughs> I think we got a we got a white Christmas at some point in the last few years. But yeah, for the most part, you're right. The only way you're, you're going to have Snow on Christmas is if you import it or you you have your tree flocked.
0: But, yeah, to come back to the point I was making earlier, I think one reason this variable weather and the unreliability of it actually feeling like wintertime at Christmas is so troubling is that we really want to have dependable seasonal cycles that correspond to our ceremonies Mm -hmm. because our ceremonies make the seasons mean something and it almost feels encoded into our bodies that the seasons should mean something it shouldn't just be a time where the weather's a little different outside it feels like seasons should mark something important in our existence
4: yeah though it is hard it is hard to backtrack cuz you can't just suddenly say i'm sorry kids but a christian saint is going to cl- climb out of the hearth uh tonight and start uh, bestowing gifts.
0: <laughs> you know, uh, if he's actually supposed to be based on Saint Nicholas, you should you should do yourself a favor and go look up some of the legends about the actual Saint Nicholas. Mm-hmm. He's fantastic. There's a great story where Saint Nicholas uh goes into an inn where there's an evil innkeeper who has uh I guess he just didn't like children, so he took some boys and he killed them and he chopped them up and he pickled them in a big pot and then St. Nicholas
4: resurrects the chopped up pickled children. Oh, man, that's wonderful. That's the best resurrection story I've ever heard. (laughs) But it does drive home the inherent darkness of Christmas. When we talk about the the commercialization and the the modernization of holiday traditions, (laughs) we're generally squeezing the darkness out of it. And that's why I feel like so many people have taken to say, Krampus and other mm-hmm. traditional yet dark elements of holiday and, and pagan tradition because they they represent the darkness that we're trying to get away from. And it ultimately is a dark time. It is about surviving the winter. It is, it is about... The cold moving in, uh, about life draining from all of our vegetation, and we have to somehow stay warm and stay fed and live to see the spring. Yeah, and it feels very
0: possible that this could be something that's like, I don't know, almost kind of a, a Jungian archetype kind of thing, mm-hmm. a thing that's coded deep into the unconscious, that's some kind of received memory from biohistory. Because you look at how a lot of other animals – Deal with the winter, deal with the cold months and it is, they go, they undergo profound changes beyond just the changes in how humans practice their culture when it gets cold.
4: Oh yeah. I mean one of the most iconic examples is of course the bear. Oh yeah. And I, I was recently listening to roaming imagination, what the stories we tell about bears say about us on CBC Radio's Ideas with Paul Kennedy, one of my favorite podcasts slash radio programs.
0: Folks out there, you didn't get to hear it, but before we started, Robert was trying to do a Paul
4: Kennedy impression. <laughs> yeah, I, sadly I can't. I can, I can nail a few impersonations, but I just can't quite capture Paul Kennedy's lovely voice. You sound kind of like Optimus Prime when you <laughs> do it. Yeah, he, he's like a Canadian Optimus Prime, I would guess. But in this episode, they, they point out the mythic power uh, of bears in many ancient northern traditions traditions that gave the bear a place of honor as a boundary walker between the human and the divine mm. because when the the cruel winter rolls in threatening our survival and even our very sanity uh, the bear ventures into the earth only to emerge again in the spring. Mm. So it's, it's, it's like a resurrection, really. Yeah. Uh, so this is why you see shamans have uh, in ancient societies taking on the guise of the holy bear. Uh, Norwegian traditions, for example, uh, in, uh, entailed grave shrouds of bear hide, appropriating the magical power of this animal that uh, seeks and returns from the winter grave. In Finland, you have pre-Christian traditions that, uh, that hold that bears can reincarnate. And uh, the indigenous reincarnate as other bears, or reincarnate as other types of creatures, uh, as bears. Yeah. So okay. there's like the, there is this uh, this cycle of the bear's soul, like the bear is following a different set of rules for life and death. And then there's the uh, indigenous uh, Ainu people of Japan that hold the bear as a god. Uh, but uh, in in a in an interesting twist, a god made flesh for their consumption and use. Uh, so after, oh, so these
0: are bear-eating peoples?
4: Well, yeah, yeah. They, they, they eat the bear. They use the bear's hide. Mm-hmm. And they make products out of the bear. Uh, but there's this idea that the god that becomes the bear has become the bear so that they can use its flesh. Oh, like, like a sacrificial, like this is my bear body. Take and eat. Exactly, yeah. And then afterwards, they hold a ceremony to return the bear god's spirit to the spirit realm. And of course, even today, bear hibernation, which which is not a, a true hibernation, remains of interest to scientists, uh, even in the consideration of future space travel.
0: Now, you say it's not a true hibernation. What would actually be the difference between this pseudo-hibernation we see in bears
4: and a true hibernation? Well, what bears do is certainly incredible, and, and we'll get to the details of that in a second, but, but true hibernation is even crazier. The Arctic ground squirrel, for instance, drops its body temperature below freezing, which is cold enough that neurons in the brain's cortex are physically incapable of firing. So basically it can put its brain on pause. Yeah, basically. Uh, In uh, Jason Biddle's uh, Slate article, The Great Do Bears Hibernate Debate? (laughs) He uh, points to a wonderful 1832 experiment uh, with torpid marmots. And it found (laughs) that you could place these hibernating creatures in a glass container full of noxious gas and they were unharmed so long as their body temperature didn't rise enough for them to emerge from hibernation. So they could sort of freeze and it's almost like they just cut themselves
0: off from outside influence in some, unless something like squishes them.
4: Yeah, yeah, as long as nothing comes in and messes with them during the hibernation. Right. I guess you're always going to be vulnerable to getting squished. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's that's the risk of being a marmot. Uh, but in the, the, the case of hibernating bears, I mean, this – they fascinate us for a number of reasons. And a lot of it comes down to the, the fact that you have this rugged apex omnivore. So it's it's a, a bestial reflection of us in many respects. I mean, it right. can even walk on two legs when, when it needs to. Yeah, I
0: was just thinking about that. It, all the ways that the bear mirrors the, the human. It can walk on two legs. It does eat both. It, you know, it's, it's a total opportunist in mm-hmm. terms of diet. It can eat both plants and animals. And when it decides to eat animals, it is a formidable... Predator, just yeah. like humans, um, it almost it seems like it's like the other thing like us out there. If you don't have great apes to compare yourself to, yeah, like if you're not in a place where there are chimpanzees or orangutans or gorillas, what's the closest thing to a human? Seems like it might be a bear.
4: Yeah, and and I was running across, across various. Folkloric beliefs and myths that, it, that involve people turning to bears, bears turning into people, the idea that bears are people who have wandered too far into the wilderness and they've been transformed by the magic of the wilderness. Oh, it feels almost like Grendel. It's yeah. like the earth rim roamer becomes a bear. Yeah, and indeed, the, and this is an earth rim roamer. In many of these traditions, it is it is ranging between life and death because it can, uh, it can essentially leapfrog over the coldest and cruelest months of the year. They, quote-unquote, hibernate. They, they cut their metabolic rate in half.
0: Yeah, t- so tell me about this pseudo-hibernation.
4: Okay, well, according to Edgar Folk of the University of Iowa, a late fall bear's heart beats 40 to 50 times a minute during sleep. Okay. But during deep hibernation, it slows to as few as eight beats a minute. So they, during this time they don't eat, uh, their body is stored up enough to provide them uh, up to 4,000 calories a day during the winter, and the bear's body even uh, takes urea, uh, you know, in urine, uh, and builds new nitrogen from the protein. They don't defecate, they don't drink, and yet when they wake in the spring, they're 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 hydrated. They have a mm-hmm. balance of uh, of water in their bodies, and they also avoid muscle cramping and degenerative bone loss during this time, despite being just crammed up in a tiny space the whole time.
0: I feel like humans often use the metaphor of hibernation. Like we think, okay, it's winter time. I'm going to spend a lot of time indoors with mm-hmm. my loved ones. We're going to cuddle up. I'm going to be under a blanket most of the time. But we don't really have anything like this to to compare this experience to. This is just a different type of existence where you can go into this submetabolic state where you really do – it's not like you die and come back. I mean metaphorically it's kind of like that. But it is as if you become a different kind of organism for for a significant part of the year. It's like you – it's almost like an animal sort of becomes a plant
4: for this amount of time yeah it becomes this sort of fleshy rock in the earth and then and, and and you can see why it captured the imaginations of people um though it is interesting to try and, and imagine Ancient peoples following the bear and finding out where the bear goes, mm-hmm. uh, and what that discovery was like—like like how they came to this realization that the that this formidable uh, creature is climbing into the the earth and just not emerging for months on end—you
0: can easily see, especially given what we've already said about it being in some cases kind of similar to a human, why this would take on a, a magical aspect to people.
4: Yeah. So in this episode, we're going to look at what we humans become during the winter. So obviously, we don't experience anything like the bear or true hibernators, uh, but the winter does have an effect on our bodies, on our minds, on our personality and our culture.
0: And through culture, I think we have sometimes found ways to mirror the bear.
4: Now, obviously, there are plenty of examples we could turn to for winter survival culture. But one of the most uh, amazing uh, is that of uh, the Kwakwak people. Yeah, so the Kwakwak
0: is the name of a group of First Nations tribes that speak the Kwakwala language, and th- this is uh, basically their home is the Pacific Northwest around Vancouver Island and stuff.
4: Yeah, and, and these various tribes have different names for themselves, but this mm. is just the this is the, the catch-all for their their. Yeah, the language group. Yeah. And uh, interestingly enough, the Field Museum in Chicago, they have an excellent section uh, on the art and culture of various Native American tribes, including this one. And Joe, you and I both visited this uh, during a 2017 visit. Yeah,
0: that is a fantastic collection. And these artworks and uh, ceremonial artifacts are just beautiful if you ever get a chance to see it. But also if uh, you get a chance, you should check out the UMISTA Cultural Center of British Columbia, which is run by the UMISTA Cultural Society. And, and that's a Kwakwaka'wakw uh, run center dedicated to preserving the cultural heritage and the uh, and the traditional artifacts of the Kwakwaka'wakw people.
4: Yeah. And I'll include a link uh, to that to organization on the landing page for this episode at stufftoblowyourmind.com. So for the Kwakwaka'wakw people, summer is a time of travel, gathering of foods, uh, preservation of foods for the winter. Because when winter comes, which runs uh, November through March, it is a harsh time. But it's also a sacred time. And during this uh, time, the people are visited by supernatural spirits. Everyone takes different names and uh, are defined more by their membership in these different dance societies, each based on a different supernatural entity. And so these societies, they they even take uh, precedence over clan affiliation. It basically divides their world up into two phases. You have the summer, which is uh, uh, Boxus, and then there's winter, which is uh, Setsequa. Which uh, which has been translated as secrets.
0: This is a really fascinating aspect of this culture because it takes something that, uh, as we were saying earlier, in some ways is kind of subtly or implicitly present in in many other cultures. Like the the way we sort of change according to the seasons, but it makes it more explicit. Yeah. And, and sort of commits the people within the culture To say yes, we are different beings when the cold months arrive.
4: Yeah, because it's one thing to think, well, you know, Joe is a slightly different person during the winter. Mm -hmm. But if you were to actually change your name, if you were to distinguish between Summer Joe and Winter Joe, and like sign things as Winter Joe, and have you know that would be that would be a different case altogether,
0: and have different intra society associations.
4: Yes. So in other words, for the Kwakwakwuk people, all cultural energy shifts from harvesting food to a four month ritual cycle aimed at taming cosmos threatening supernatural forces. While the rule of summer is a hierarchy based on uh, mythical founding ancestors, uh, Setsequa is all about the dance groups. And I have a wonderful quote here I want to read that I think underlines a lot of this. This is from a paper titled, It is a strict law that bids us dance. Uh, cosmologies, colonialism, death, and ritual authority in the Kwakwakwakw Potlatch, 1849 uh, to 1922 by Joseph Masco, uh, published in Comparative Studies in Society and History. In total, the seasons present a ritual cycle which deconstructs and reinvents the social order. The barren winter months in which the collective spiritual energy of all the tribes must be focused on regenerating the natural world are turned into a fecundity of the summer months, when the animal world, placated by continuing ritual, offers itself up for human consumption. Thus, the Kwakuwaks saw themselves as participants in a universal ecology requiring continuous maintenance. Its root metaphor was that of hunter and hunted. To live means to kill. Now, to give you an example of some of the the dance groups, the the affiliations that one uh, is associated with during the winter, uh, there is the uh, Hamasta or Cannibal Society. And they're defined by the myth of four brothers who ventured into the home of the cannibal spirit at the, quote, north end of the world, which I can't help but think of Santa oh. <laughs> when we, we touch on that. But uh Here, the cannibal spirit lived with a man-eating raven called Crooked Beak of Heaven and a giant bird who cracked open human skulls with its beak and ate the brains. Uh, the brothers end up defeating uh, all of these uh, creatures, and they gain special powers. So to join the society, you had to undergo an ordeal in which the cannibal spirit kidnaps you, takes you into the woods, and when you return to the the tribe, you're possessed like a wild man. You're dressed only in scraps of hemlock. You're dancing about in a squatting position, and the others have to entice you to venture close to the fire with uh, either a, a corpse or a corpse-like figure. Whoa. Yeah, so you, you lun- you're you lunging at people, you're biting at people, you're even actually biting pre-selected people. So this is like a choreographed thing. Yeah, well, I wonder to what extent it's it's like choreographed maybe with a bit of improv. You know, it's it's theater. It's essentially, well, just call it theater is, is probably not giving it enough – uh Depth because it is the most potent form of theater.
0: Yeah, It's not necessarily a performance for an audience, but it's an enactment.
4: Yes, an enactment for the people and for the cosmos. Yeah, it is. It is a magical ceremony. Finally, an attendant leads you around the fire by a neck ring, pacifying you with music four times around the fire. And then you climb through a hole in a ceremonial screen. And you reappear in the mask of the man eating raven, then you reappear maskless, and then as the crooked beak of heaven, and finally you return for a fifth dance, fully tamed and dance in an upright position. Wow, so we see this like this transformation, this taming of the wild um and, and and it also touches on this idea of the the cannibal spirit uh which you see present in a number of different um uh, uh, native uh, peoples folk beliefs uh-huh. m- probably most famous and uh, typified in in the Wendigo in addition to this you have the grizzly bear society that keeps order during the ceremony sometimes even even punishing transgressions with death and uh, during some of the dances you see them wearing full bear skins and behaving as bears you have fool fool dancers who run around causing chaos, and then you have the wild woman of the woods. Oh, that's great! Oh yeah, because this one she appears as a, a person clad in bear skins and a horrid mask, and she carries a basket. Uh which she uses to um to crate away children who've wandered into the woods so so that she can eat them. I detect some parallels to Krampus, yeah, I mean both of these are the the wild child eating creature that that uh, serves as a warning to naughty children uh during during the winter, so on one hand i my, my reaction to this is strong
0: in that I Not only find this very, like, aesthetically pleasing and and beautiful, but also I, I detect a kind of deep genius in it, if that makes any sense. There's something profound that the practitioners of these ceremonies have tapped into about our nature as human beings. That a lot of us have not quite figured out how to properly animate.
4: Yeah, yeah. I love how revealing this example feels, even for denizens of the modern world. You know, we're so technologically aided in our battle against winter. We, we have heated homes. We have, we have, uh, you know, all the le- electricity we can use. We have, we have fresh water. We have, we can even have fresh vegetables delivered right to our door. Uh, and yet this still strikes a chord of truth for us.
0: Yeah, absolutely, because no matter how many space heaters you surround yourself with and no matter how much you have access to unholy summer foods Mm -hmm. uh, out of season in the winter – and, folks, I should just say, don't buy tomatoes in the winter. (laughs) Just don't do it. Don't encourage that.
4: Oh, but what if you need spaghetti? Spaghetti is such a – Use canned tomatoes. They were canned in the summer.
0: That's okay. That's
4: right. I mean that's the spirit of surviving the winter is use the canned goods. Use the survival foods. Eat the pickles yeah. as long as they're not made from children obviously. Wait, where was I going with that?
0: Well no, I- anyway. <laughs> so um no you know no matter just like you say no matter how much we can use technology to ward off some of the worst effects of seasonal changes whether it's actually winter or hot summer months or if you live in tropical areas whether it's the rainy season you might be able to technologically put yourself into a state of stability mm-hmm. you know indoors with all of this uh, electrical equipment but we sort of can't write seasonal changes out of our DNA. Things like uh, the winter, the rainy season, you know, whatever these seasonal changes are that are relevant wherever you live, they're a deep part of us that is not going to dissipate just because we've got climate control.
4: That's right. On that note, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will begin to explore the winter changes to the human body. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples.
1: Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber. Live like a gigianer. Available wherever you'll get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com/hypergig for details.
3: Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring with access to over 6 million active hourly workers
0: All right. We're back. All right. So we've talked about rituals that reimagine the person as sort of a different type of being living in a different type of uh, cosmic significance regime with, within the seasonal changes, like within the winter mm-hmm. versus the summer. Mm-hmm. But there are many ways in which our bodies are very – uh you might say very finely and delicately sensitive
4: to seasonal changes. Right. Yeah. And this is – In this area of the discussion, we're going to get into some areas here where there's no question that – the winter has an effect on the body. So for starters, we're creatures who evolve to thrive in the sun. So you can expect some firm biological reasons that you would need to, say, catch a few rays, right, even as the rays become rarer in the colder months.
0: Now, Robert, I know you can tell me good reasons we shouldn't extinguish the sun. There, <laughs> there are some days, especially here in our office, where in the wintertime, in the afternoon, the sun comes around and comes just through the window in such a way that I am an ant under a magnifying glass at my desk. And like my screens just turn into a tunnel of white light into death where I can't see anything <laughs> for the glare. And I have at those times said I want to extinguish the sun. Can we find a way to do it? Just put it out. <laughs> but that's probably a bad idea, right?
4: I'm probably, yeah, yeah. I would, I would advise against that. Uh, you know. For starters, it, it does uh, light and heat and sustain the world. Yeah. But uh, but then there's also vitamin D to consider. Okay. So vitamin D, this is a, a fat soluble nutrient that our bodies need to absorb calcium and phosphorus, both of which are central to the development of strong bones. Now we can get uh, vitamin D from oily fish, from fortified milk, but f- for the most part, you're going to need the sun uh, to get your vitamin D. Okay. Or supplements. But when we get into the, the subject of supplements, that's that's where things get surprisingly sticky. Uh, and I have to admit, I really was not uh, up on all of this until I read uh, an article by uh, Gina Colada in uh, the New York Times titled, Why Are So Many People Popping Vitamin D? Because <laughs> it tastes so good. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yeah, maybe. But, uh, but basically, the situation here is that about a decade ago, some doctors became concerned about potential uh, vitamin D deficiency in people enduring far northern climates. Hmm. Uh, people such as Dr. Michael F. Holick, a uh, prof- professor of medicine, uh, physiology, and biophysics at Boston University School of Medicine, advocated the importance of vitamin D supplements based on what seemed to be an association between low vitamin D levels and higher rates of various diseases. The idea was that uh, vitamin D levels were that were lower, but considered normal back in early 2000s, might be linked to multiple sclerosis and mental illness as well as cancer risk and bone health. Wow. I mean, those are some wide-ranging effects. Yeah. So the recommended daily allowance uh, is, uh, is currently set at 600 international units up to age 70 and 800 international units for people who are older. And uh, as Colada points out, this would require near constant exposure to sunlight. Well, that doesn't sound practical. <laughs> Especially during the winter, right, where right. there is literally less sunlight to go around. And you can couple that with the possibility that you're huddling inside of a cave or you know, or a, or a, or at least a uh, a, a very nice uh, heated apartment or home.
0: Now, one thing I guess we should go ahead and say right here—it probably would have come up at some point—but uh, we also we don't want to encourage northern hemisphere bias, so we should mention that the winter is not just say December, January, February. The winter is affected by what hemisphere you dwell in, right? right. So it's about the tilt of the Earth and the amount of direct sunlight that you're receiving at your latitude on the Earth. So the winter months for the northern hemisphere the summer months for the southern hemisphere and vice versa. Both both hemispheres will get a summer and a winter unless you're near the equator. Um, but yeah, so there you go.
4: As Colada explores, uh, small studies and even larger ones, however, have failed to support a link between vitamin D and the prevention of heart attacks, cancer, and strokes. Uh, yet vitamin D supplements remain big business, but there's been some pushback against the notion that they provide a, a true measurable medical boost, Uh Uh, nor they say is there good reason for people without osteoporosis or vitamin D absorption interfering conditions to undergo regular tests for vitamin D. Now, that's not to say vitamin D deficiency isn't a problem, especially uh, in utero and during early childhood. It can result in rickets, uh, which is a defective mineralization or calcification of bones in growing bodies. And this is still a problem in the developing world. Uh, It can cause skeletal growth retardation, skeletal deformities, and increase the risk of hip fractures in later life. Uh, This uh, this last bit, according to Dr. Michael F. Holick, who I referenced earlier, Holick is a is an author that comes up time and time again in these various uh, studies about uh, vitamin D deficiency.
0: Man, I feel like vitamin supplements is one of those incredibly controversial issues that I, I can never really get a settled opinion on. And it's something I've read about multiple times, but I, you know, I read people saying, yeah, take them. No, don't take them. Yeah, no, you should take them. No, they don't do anything.
4: (laughs) Yeah, I feel like, especially for a lot of us who grew up, you know, being preached at, sometimes by Hulk Hogan himself on the importance of taking our vitamins, Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's this weird, uh, uh, revelation to, to realize that, well, Actually, the science isn't isn't one hundred percent solid on the necessity of some of these vitamins.
0: Well, it's not. I think it's not the vitamins themselves, right? But it's no, yes, yeah, the supplements, supplement yes. form. Be- because yeah. there's
4: no denying that vitamin D is important to the human body. Yeah, what, what the sticking point is. To what extent do we need to be taking supplements or does the average person need to take supplements to make up for what you're perhaps not getting from the sun? Now, there's still a lot of research out there on the degree to which vitamin D uh, via supplements, supplements and fortification is important to human health. And, I mean, there is a, a lot of research in this area. And and perhaps it's something we'll have to circle back around to in the future. But here's just a taste of some of the recent studies. Okay. Okay. Uh, 2017, uh, here are just a few. Vitamin D linked with better live birth rates in women undergoing assisted reproduction. Okay. Vitamin D may be simple treatment to enhance burn healing. Huh. Vitamin D supplements could help pain management. Huh. Vitamin D deficiency increases risk of chronic headache. And then here's a 2016 when increasing nursing mothers' vitamin D levels may benefit babies. As I said earlier, uh,
0: apparently wide-ranging effects. I'm I'm always kind of curious about stuff that that seems to have effects so broad. Yeah. Not to say I doubt the research. I mean, uh, I'm sure there's a lot to be learned about how uh, how important nutrients like this are.
4: Now, interestingly enough, a number of the studies have come out of Finland, a northern European country known for its cold winters and, of course, its sauna dependency.
0: You know, that doesn't surprise me. I mean, if you've got a deficiency of sunlight, this seems like a thing very much worth studying.
4: Yeah. And this, uh among the studies, there was a large-scale 2017 study uh, published in Neurology that finds women with low levels of vitamin D in their blood are more likely to develop multiple sclerosis later in life. Still, as uh, Gina Collada drives home in a New York Times article, there has never been widely accepted evidence that vitamin D is helpful in preventing or treating depression, fatigue, muscle weakness, or even heart disease or cancer. Huh. Sounds like we got a lot of question marks. Yeah. So, yeah. I, again, you, you kind of – I feel like you kind of leave this section perhaps with more questions than answers.
0: Uh, I feel like that happens almost any time we get into nutrition. Nutrition mm-hmm. is just one of the thorniest subjects out there. And whenever it comes down to what nutrient really does prevent X, Y, or Z or cause X, Y, or Z, you think you know something, but then there are a lot more question marks.
4: Yeah. But still – undeniably, we can say we need vitamin D. Yeah. We get a lot of it from the sun. Yeah. And there is less sunlight in the winter. Yes. So do with that information what you will. All right. On that note, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. Today's episode is brought to you by
0: eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride.
1: Inspired by guaranteed, straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber. Live like a there. Available wherever you will get your podcast. Limited to the availability in select areas. Visit at&t.com/hypergig for details. Snag a job is where
3: America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring.
2: LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash iHeart. That's LifeLock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here.
4: All right, we're back. Now, another area of consideration is the effect of sunlight on melatonin. And I'm sure everyone has at least some familiarity with what we're talking about here. Seasonal uh, affective disorder.
0: Oh, really? So I've actually wondered about this before because I've wondered if I have some mild form of this. But that also led me to do a little reading on it. And I know some people would allege that this is not really a real or distinct condition. Now, of course, there are mood disorders Mm -hmm. and some people might experience them more often in winter months. But is this a distinct disorder of its own?
4: yeah, this is a, this is another area with a fair amount of conflict in it, and yet, at the same time, I'm like you, I can't help but think about the winter, especially when I'm in the winter and ask myself, well, am I feeling a bit blue today because because it's uh, it's cold out yeah is it uh, is it is it do I have some level of seasonal affective disorder? Yeah, then again, I mean, you, you, when you do that, you
0: run the risk of uh, of blowing out of proportion or self-medicalizing yeah. you know, sort of basically normal levels of mood fluctuation. Like I might feel a lot more down in the winter, especially it does seem to be somewhat seasonally related because I feel it especially in the afternoon when I notice the sun is very low, very early in the afternoon. That's mm-hmm. sort of the, the visual and, and – uh a uh, sensory trigger for it I start to feel the doom creeping in but I don't want to get carried away and uh, and start thinking oh yeah I've got a I've got a disorder I've got a mood disorder
4: yeah well but one of the interesting things is that it, on one level you can say oh well, well Joe is Joe sees the uh the approaching darkness and uh, and and is, is frightened by the, the the terror of night it may just be that I suddenly have insight in the
0: truth is that doom is always creeping in
4: well but the other side of it is your body has insight as, yeah. as we're going to discuss here like the perception of 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 darkness and light. Uh, is taking place at a, you know, at a far subconscious level, mm-hmm. uh, at a bodily level. So the pineal gland secretes melatonin. This is a hormone that communicates information about environmental lighting to various parts of the body. Mm. It's especially key to biological rhythms and the duration of melatonin secretion each day is directly proportional to the length of the night. Okay. So this for just one thing among
0: many probably helps to deal with our sleep cycles. Our body needs to know when it's time to
4: sleep, right? Exactly. So naturally, shorter days mean less melatonin. And this kind of decrease in melatonin is often linked to seasonal affective disorder, uh, which, just to to define it more clearly, uh, is seen as a mood disorder subset that sees otherwise mentally healthy individuals experience a mood dip during the winter. It affects women more than men. And theories regarding its cause also include a drop in serotonin levels due to reduced sunlight as well as disrupted uh, circadian rhythm. Hmm. Uh, At any rate, uh, rates of uh, seasonal affective disorder do seem to increase the farther you move away from the equator. Huh. Okay. So this, this is how the National Institutes of Mental Health currently defines it. Seasonal affective disorder is not considered as a separate disorder. It is a type of depression displaying a recurring seasonal pattern. To be diagnosed with uh, with seasonal affective disorder, people must meet full criteria for major depression, coinciding with specific seasons appearing in the winter or summer months, interestingly enough, for at least two years. Seasonal depressions must be much more frequent than any non-seasonal depressions. And uh, the, the, the full range of symptoms include low energy, hypersomnia, overeating, weight gain, craving for uh, carbohydrates, and of course social withdrawal, which some people say feels like hibernating.
0: Now I'm sure some people would just say rather cheekily like well, you just described my personality. You know, <laughs> that is who I am. but I think what we're talking about here is like these symptoms to a level that it causes uh, problems in your life.
4: Now seasonal def- uh, affective disorder has Always been somewhat divisive. It's it's only been uh, recognized as a condition since the late nineteen nineties, and not everyone deg- agrees that it's a full fledged disorder. Uh-huh. Uh, A 2016 study headed up by Dr. Stephen Lobello, a professor of psychology at Auburn University at Montgomery, found that, quote, the prevalence of depression is very stable across different latitudes, seasons of the year, and sunlight exposures. And uh, in getting to to this uh, point, the researchers examined data from uh, 34,294 participants age 18 to 99 who took part in a phone survey about their health. Through 2006. Okay.
0: So this would seem to contrast with what you said earlier, which was th- that uh, at least it had been alleged that yes. the rates of seasonal affective disorder type symptoms were reported more at higher latitudes.
4: Right. Yeah. This would seem to fly in the face of that. Okay. On the other hand, however, uh, a recent Northwestern Medicine study found that daily exposure to bright white light at midday significantly decreased symptoms of depression and increased functioning in people with bipolar disorder. And previous studies have found uh, morning bright light therapy reduced symptoms of depression in patients with seasonal affective disorder. You know, so one thing I'm taking away from this is this is yet another –
0: situation where once you try to nail down exactly what this condition is mm-hmm. and you know you, you medicalize it and you put it in scientific terminology it does seem to get a little fuzzy maybe right um, but there's no denying that there's something people are experiencing what whether or not uh, whether or not it fits the medical definition of the disorder as established people, Anecdotally report things like this enough that you know at least people are feeling something. Right,
4: I, I think it's it's undeniable that winter can impact one's existing emotional state. Yeah, and sometimes that impact is sufficient enough to where it it's it seems to be a, an actual uh, psychological condition. Now,
0: here's another weird thing about the way our bodies change with the seasons. It is not just vitamin D deficiency or mood changes that can be caused by the winter months, but you actually see a pretty stark increase in the risk of mortality from certain diseases during winter.
4: That's right. There is something that's referred to as winter cardiovascular diseases phenomenon uh, because there does seem to be a seasonal trend of cardiovascular diseases, and these range from uh, venous thrombosis to sudden cardiac death. Uh, with the highest incidences uh, occurring during the colder winter months.
0: Now, there could be a lot of reasons for that, right? That's mm-hmm. one of those things where you, you say, okay, we're correlating two variables here, you know, this cardiovascular disease death and the winter months, and it might not necessarily be the winter conditions itself that causes it, but it, they do appear to be
4: correlated. Yes. Now, in a lighter note, <laughs> there is something that's also referred to as cuffing season, Uh, Were you familiar with this? No, I wasn't. I went and read the article. I mean, I (laughs) this is pretty funny. Why do they call it cuffing? I don't know. Where's that term come from? It comes from it's it's handcuffing. So uh, there's a How Stuff Works article about this that came out last year.
0: (laughs) I, I, I understand it's from handcuffing. Yes. But you want to
4: handcuff yourself to another person. It's like, it is cold. I am lonely. I need to find somebody to shackle myself to uh, so that we may survive the winter together. It's the season of that movie, Fled. <laughs> yeah, it's, it is kind of like Fled. Uh, yeah, th- the idea here is that you, to get through the winter, you, you need to find somebody. Uh, and uh, y- you want into a warming relationship. And there may be a biological reason behind it all. According to biochemist Dr. Jennifer Stagg, it may be coded into our DNA. Uh, so in the fall, uh, genes get turned on that result in changes in both hormones and neurotransmitters that may be responsible uh, for driving us to pair up. Plus, you have testosterone levels in men. Uh, they appear to be lowest during times of warmer weather uh, and longer daylight. Peak testosterone occurs around October, November, uh, but uh, elevation is seen throughout the winter months. Hmm. So there seems to be a a, a winter drive. To pair up, a winter drive to mate.
0: Yeah, and this apparently is not just a tiny uptick. Like as measured by dating apps and stuff like that, Mm -hmm. one of the figures was that apparently OkCupid reports about a thirty percent increase in love seeking activity during winter. I mean, you can't deny almost a third more lovin.
4: Yeah, that that is a lot more lovin. Winter lovin.
0: Now, one of the things you mentioned as a possible symptom outlined by NIM for uh, seasonal affective disorder is cravings for carbohydrates. Yes. That immediately made me think of our Thanksgiving and Christmas feasting traditions.
4: Yeah, exactly. What, what do we all inevitably do around Thanksgiving but like, just, just stuff ourselves with all of these fatty rich foods? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it also like anecdotally makes me think of, of teleworking, working from home during the fall or winter where i seem to just inevitably just turn the house upside down to find various things to to spread peanut butter on like i feel like <laughs> my my work is disrupted by this constant rummaging for food okay now i got to put you on the spot what's the weirdest thing you've ever put peanut butter on ooh um lego spaceship oh <laughs> uh, nothing nothing so um exotic Pro- probably something salty uh, like okay. a okay potato chip or something you know we a... done peanut butter on beef jerky oh gosh no that's <laughs> that's, that's 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 pretty bad have you no how
0: okay. about peanut butter on a lemon
4: <laughs> oh no no i haven't done that uh yeah but you almost get to that point like yeah. luckily you reach the point where you just eat it off a spoon I think, before you get to the point where you're, you're spreading it on things that are too horrible. But as you might expect, there have been some studies that have looked at uh, at this, at the idea of, of there being a slightly different winter diet for humans. Uh-huh. Uh, some studies ha- have observed seasonal rhythms to human diet, uh, which, uh, which shouldn't come as a surprise. A 1991 study in uh, physiology and behavior marked, quote, an increased total caloric intake, especially of carbohydrate in the fall associated with an increase in meal size and a greater rate of eating rate of eating it 's like a d and d stat yeah a ten percent boost in uh, in eating. you can boost your <laughs> eating stat for the the month. Now, specifically, the researchers found that subjects were hungrier at the end of their meals, perhaps due to a suppression of satiation mechanisms. Okay,
0: so it's not necessarily that you want to eat more at the beginning, but you start eating and it's a longer time before you actually feel full.
4: Yeah, it just takes longer to reach that point where you are full or stuffed. Mm -hmm. Um, They argue that this could be an evolved adaptation that remains with us even in this, you know, ultimately – evolutionarily brief age of artificial heating and light.
0: Right. Well, we obviously think about the bear who feasts before going into hibernation so that they can have that uh, that stored up fat for the 4,000 calories a day even while hibernating.
4: Yeah, it does seem to be the sort of the shadow of the bear, doesn't it? Yeah. where we're, we're kind of mirroring its behavior. Uh, eat as much as you, you can while the food still remains plentiful in order to you know, to, to to shore up for the, the 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 months of winter ahead. Oh, and by the way, there was uh, there was actually a recent 2017 study published in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition, uh, and they uh, explored the idea that obesity uh, as an epidemic mm-hmm. uh, might also be due in large part to a circadian disorder. I
0: think I've heard hints of this before, mm-hmm.
4: like that it that stuff about metabolic disorders could be
0: related. To uh, to like sleep schedules and things like that.
4: Yeah, I I, I guess through, through all of this, I'm I'm reminded that humans, like all animals, are not just creatures that live within summer or live within winter, but they live ultimately in some sort of sync with their natural environments. You know, we, we're not we're not immune to changes in, um, in in the degree of sunlight that we're receiving and the warmth of the world or the availability of resources, and we've evolved to thrive amid this uh, these, these, this seasonal flow.
0: Okay, so we're going to have to wrap it up there for the first part of our discussion about the seasonal changes that warp and command our lives. But we had a lot to say about this, so we're going to be back next time with part two of this conversation when we'll discuss more about the winter beings we become.
4: In the meantime, you can find... All the episodes of the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast at StuffToBlowYourMind.com along with blog posts, videos, and links out to our various social media accounts such as Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram, and so forth. And, hey, if you do seek us out on Facebook, well, then look for our Facebook group, the Stuff to Blow Your Mind discussion module. That's a wonderful place where you sign up and you can discuss episodes or things you would like to become episodes with other listeners to the show as well as uh, Joe and, and, and I as well. It's a great place. It gets weird
0: in there, but it's always so nice. Indeed. And if you want to get in touch with us directly, as always, you can email us at blowthemind@howstuffworks.com.
3: At For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.
0: what are you waiting for?
4: Get with the times and switch to visible at visible.com. Monthly rate on the visible plan for data management practices and additional terms. Visit visible.com.
1: Top Two
0: is like no other course. Two 420 foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy.
4: Zumo Play.